Hello, my loves. I hope you're doing so well today. I'm really excited about this podcast. I interviewed Savio in this podcast, and he actually interviewed almost 200 cancer survivors at one point. He wrote a book, and we talk about that in this episode. But to give you a little bit of information on Savio, he coaches cancer survivors and how to overcome the confusion and gain the clarity needed to get busy living in mind, body, and spirit. He inspires health and wellness seekers to find meaning in the why and to cultivate resilience in their mindset. Savio is a board-certified wellness coach, and he's the number one best-selling author, syndicated columnist, podcaster, stage three cancer survivor, and founder of the Human Resolve LLC. Savio has interviewed notable TV personalities and is featured in prominent publications from Authority Magazine, Thrive Global, to BuzzFeed. He has covered numerous wellness technologies and traveled industry events in the United States and abroad. His mission is to offer clients, listeners, and viewers alike tangible takeaways in living a truly healthy, wealthy, and wise lifestyle. Without further ado, let's get into this episode. You're listening to the What's With Cancer podcast. This is your host, Mazina, and I'm a certified health coach, life coach, breathwork facilitator, as well as my mom's caregiver. When my mom was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer back in 2019, the doctors told us she probably wouldn't live past two years. But I wasn't willing to give up that easy and I started learning and implementing absolutely everything I could find out from other people that survived this disease. After seeing my mom go through the ups and downs over the years and successfully outliving her prognosis, it made me realize that there's so much more to learn about this and there's so many unanswered questions. And I want to know, what's with the industry telling us that there's no cure when there's been thousands of people that have overcome a terminal diagnosis? What's with the conflicting information that's presented to us about treatment, diet, and lifestyle? And lastly, what comes with a diagnosis? How do we manage the day-to-day things, the hard conversations, the stress, and our social life whenever our entire world has completely changed? There is nothing worse than feeling helpless, overwhelmed, and lost whenever it comes to a serious diagnosis like cancer. And it is my mission to share stories of hope, insight, and truth to help guide you through the unknown times. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you find value in the show. Savio, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here today. Oh, Mazina, thank you so much for inviting me. I really, really appreciate it. Okay, so we have so much to dive into. I don't know if we're going to be able to cover it in 45 minutes, but we will try our best. So I want to begin with you, your story, and how cancer has shown up in your life. Wow, it's a big one. Uh, So cancer officially showed up in my life in July of 2014. Um, I took a trip with a friend to um, uh, Amsterdam and to London, and I noticed that my bed sheets were soaked, um, like really drenched, and I just chalked it up to maybe food or just, you know, the heat or the environment. Uh, Fast forward, I got back to the States and then I noticed it happened again a few times. Um, And then I also noticed my stomach started becoming distended, bigger and bigger. I'm a genetically, (laughs) I'm male, I'm a cisgendered male. So I know I knew I wasn't pregnant or anything of that sort. Um, And uh, I went to go see my naturopath. So I've been seeing a naturopath who analyzes my blood work for over 10 years, um, tells me my vitamin structure, what I need to eat, what I need to not do. 
he looked at my, my, my values, my blood values. And he's like, something is wrong. He's like, I, I can see like three different things here, but he's like, I really advise you to go seek mainstream medicine. So I did. Um, I went to get a sonogram. They would not let me leave the office for like an hour and a half. And I was like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Afterwards, they said to me, um, you, you need to call a relative or a friend to pick you up. I'm like, what do you mean? I have my own car here. Um, and uh, I did. They told me to go to the hospital. I got seen by a doctor. And then within an hour and a half, I was admitted to the fifth floor of the hospital. So I had zero time to even process anything. Um, then I overheard that same night doctors um, or the nurses talking about being transferred to the seventh floor, which they called the cancer floor. So I had an inkling that might have been what it was. Um, I didn't know until the next day that they put a nephrostomy tube in me. They had to uh, they had to distend about seven liters of fluid from my abdomen, about five to seven liters of fluid from my abdomen. Wow. And then when they did that, the doctor, the doctor whispered in my ear, it's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, and that was really and so that's a mouthful. <laughs> that was really how yeah. I found out I had cancer. Wow. That's incredible. How old were you then? I was like 38. Wow. 38, 39. Yeah. And like, what was going on in your life then? Cause at 38, 39, the last thing you're thinking about is cancer diagnosis. Yeah. So, you know, I was re- recalling this with a friend. Of course I, I wrote about it in my book. Yeah. Um, I, on all levels were pretty much doing what you're supposed to be doing. So I was eating organic foods. I was eating non-hormone, you know, uh, hormone-free foods. Uh, I've been a long time meditator. I've been meditating for about 20 years of my life. Um, I was doing affirmative prayer. I was keeping positive. Um, I am a curious person, so I'm always trying to learn. And, and I was like a baby biohacker. So I was like doing all these different things. But I will honestly say, Mazina, I think for me at the time, I was going through emotional turmoil. So I was in a co-business relationship with three other individuals. It didn't end well. And I think I took on a lot of that. I'm not saying that was the only reason for cancer. We don't know. But mm-hmm. I think that was a major cause. I think I took on the negativity. I took on the stress. And mm-hmm. I just didn't know how to adequately. I, I didn't have the tools to um, uh, work through it and to speak about it. I'm a very private, sensitive person. Uh, and so for me, I would, if I would have to pinpoint, I would say um, I really neglected um I need, I need, I very much neglected my emotional self and my psychological self. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure we're going to talk all about that in the podcast. What year was this? Uh, 2014. It was July of 2014. 2014. And you're doing all the right things. Like, and like, even like 2014, that it was not as heard of as it is now, like, you know, eating organic and doing prayers. So it must've felt really like, okay, what did I do wrong? Like, what was your, what was your mental process around that whole thing? Because like, you were probably really healthy. Like it sounded like you were taking care of yourself really well. I was, I was, I forgot to mention, I was working six to seven days a week at the gym. I was doing high intensity. I was doing spitting. I was doing um, strength training. I was doing all the, all the quote unquote right things. Uh, So my whole family like literally took it like they were shocked. They were like, if you got cancer, I don't know about the rest yeah, of then us. We're, we're like the healthiest person yeah. in this room. Um, but I felt a lot of shame. I did. I felt a lot of shame. I know that sounds weird, but I did. I felt like I somehow willed it into my being that somehow, um, you know, to this day, Mazina, my extended family, so my cousins, aunts, uncles, still don't know I have cancer because uh, my family, my immediate nuclear family wanted to tell them, but I was like, I don't want to be seen as a zoo animal. I was in the hospital for two weeks. I was bedridden for a week. Um, and I just felt a lot of shame around it. 
I just didn't know how to process that that feeling of vulnerability. Um, and it took me years later to unpack it all. Uh, I'm still a work in progress, uh, even though I'm a coach, because I always believe if you don't know how to coach yourself, you will not know how to coach someone else. Yeah. Yeah. So give us some pointers. What would you have maybe done differently to kind of cope with that? Well, one of the things that in my book that I really appreciated is people talking about let leaning on other people like family members or friends for support because they want to help you, but they don't know what to do or what to say. So yeah. them being there is for them to like, they're able to do something for you without actually saying something and they can act like a scribe when you're at the doctor's office so that you don't have to take all that information in. Yeah. Um, I didn't do any of that. I saw cancer as like me and cancer. It's a challenge and I'm going to study you. I'm going to learn about you. I'm going to learn about your weaknesses mm -hmm. and I'm going to do all I can. Uh, so that's number one. I think the second thing um, that individuals really should be doing is really, and this is, I do a lot of embodiment work, working with the body, what the body is maybe trying to tell you or show you. Uh, and to a large degree, even though I did all the physical things outside, I was just not really listening to what my body was telling me. My cancer was mainly in my stomach area. And that is really like the gut. And I teach a lot about this is really sort of the center of courage. And I didn't have the courage to speak up. I didn't have the courage to say what I wanted or needed. Uh, and so for me, it showed up in that way. Uh, I would say probably another thing that I really found as a silver thread throughout all the conversations and interviews that I've done is really this feeling of they don't want to mess up the second opportunity. They got cancer. They somehow miraculously beat it. Yeah. And they just want to like live the best life that they can so that it doesn't go out in vain. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about your book. What about it? What is it yeah. called? What, what what started this whole reason to even write a book in the first place? All right. I, I, I backtrack. So I presented this uh, sort of idea to my editor. Mm -hmm. I'm like, listen, I'm a cancer, I'm a board certified wellness coach. My niche is cancer survivors. I help them overcome the confusion, gain the clarity mm -hmm. to get busy living in mind, body, and spirit. He's like, oh, that's so interesting. He's like, I didn't Okay. He's like, let's try it. Yeah. I got like over 200 responses for this individuals okay. who survived cancer. And, and he's like, this is amazing. And he was reading those stories and he was like, he was floored by what people were saying. And I was very meticulous or very careful in what I asked because the work that I do is, is an embodiment with the body, but also asking questions about vision and asking questions about where do you want to go or what did cancer maybe show you or teach you or if it had a language or a message or something to tell you, what would it say? Uh, and then after that, he's like, Savio, this has to be a book. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, and you know, just to give you some information, like I was never one of those kids who said like, I don't want a book. Like I was never one of those kids who said like, I want my name embossed on a book or I didn't ISBN number with my name. Like I always said, if I ever wrote a book, the book would, would serve as a means for that people can learn and they want the book. Yeah. And so it's kind of what I did. I selected 35 um, of the survivor stories in there. I told my own story in it. Uh, and it launched and it launched February 22nd, about a month and a half ago. I woke up eight, 10 hours later. My book promotions team told me it hit bestsellers in three categories, oh which means, yes, it's great for sales. But truly, truly, if you know me as a person, you know, I didn't write it for that. I wrote it really because I wanted to tell a survivor story. I wanted people to have hope and I wanted people to know that something horrible like this can happen to you, but there is a way in and out of it. Yeah. Props to Savio. Um, I can tell that it's not in it for you because you didn't just write your own story. You wrote everyone else's story. 
you know, and I like how it's structured. It goes through different like people's stories and how they, you know, perceived the whole thing, maybe what they would have done differently and how they asked for support or who they like wanted to thank and what the underlining reason is for each person. Um, going through this journey, what was that maybe some beliefs that you had beforehand that maybe had altered or some realizations that you came to after interviewing all of these people, like you interviewed almost 200 people for, oh, how long did that take you? That probably took a while. <laughs> it took about six months, but I'm someone, if, if, if you know me and I broke every LinkedIn algorithm, the algorithm on LinkedIn said you should not post more than two to three times a day. I was posting like five to six because I had to get these stories out. I'm like, no, I, I no, my editor's like, no, you can really like slow down. I'm like, no, this is, you don't understand. Cancer is one of those things you have to act fast. And yeah. I want to tell these stories fast. So yeah. that was, yeah. So about yeah. six months. Did Yeah. So what were any like shifts or realizations or ahas that you had as you're going through these interviews and learning about people's stories? Well, one of the individuals named Kelly in the book speaks about the fact that her doctors and kind of my doctors intimated to some degree that you shouldn't Google your, your, your disease. Mm -hmm. But I agree with her. If you don't Google it, or at least you don't get the adequate information, how are you supposed to know what its weaknesses or strengths are? How are you supposed to know what you're even fighting? Yeah. How do you even know how to make sense of it all? Um, and so for me, um, I hear what they're saying because it can be a very daunting, scary thing when you do Google it, yeah. but it arms you because being forewarned is to be forearmed. Um, so I definitely think that was number one. I think sort of this idea of normalcy, like not going back to you before cancer, but picking out the parts of you that you liked or that you loved that you want to see flourish after cancer, because you can recreate those moments in a different way. So I think that was really powerful as well. Um, and really sort of the feeling of, um, you know, like caretaking, like this, this idea of the fact that you can allow people to help you. Like that was my big shift in, in realization, this idea of vulnerability, this idea that um, people really, really care and, and love you and they want to see the best for you. They don't know what to maybe say, Yeah, but you have to let them in. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the hardest things, like me being a caregiver, um, and taking my mom on overnight, like she wasn't able to dress herself or bathe herself or get like, she had a walker. She was bedridden, um, for months in the beginning. So she really like, she needed someone like, although I know every ounce in her body just like, didn't want to be a burden to me. It had to be done. Like someone had to take care of her. Um, and that was a lot for me to handle too, because, I felt like, well, I mean, I was like in my like mid twenties. So I'm like mm. all my friends, they didn't know what to do and they didn't know what to say to me. And I almost like wanted to isolate myself because I didn't want to feel like a burden for them to make them feel uncomfortable because I felt uncomfortable. And then it was just like this big, like shit show. Cause I felt resentful and then I got burnt out and I didn't know how to ask for help. So how, how have you found the easiest way to ask for help, whether you be a caregiver or someone going through a cancer diagnosis? I think really the key there is to like assess yourself. Like yeah. what is it that you need and what is it that you want? And just write it down and then try to like figure out within your body what's pulling you towards those specific things that you sort of mentioned. Because I think it's easy for so for someone to say, can you take me? Cause like, like my dad volunteered. He's like, I'll pick you up every time you, you do five hour, five to six hour chemo. I can't believe I even did that. Uh, I did six rounds of it. Um, and he's like, I'll, I'll pick you up. And, you know, they advise someone to pick you up because you'll be tired and stuff. But my inclination was, no, I have my own car. I'm, I'm independent. 
And I really appreciated the fact that he waited for me. So I think the key there is to really figure out what is it that you actually need and what is it that you actually want. It sounds simple to say, but it's really hard when you actually uh, take the time to actually think about it and um, and assess that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's honestly, especially whenever you're first diagnosed, like you can barely catch your breath because you're well, you're either going into two different modes, pure defeat, and you're dwindling out and just spiraling into that negative spiral. Or you're going into this obsessive like research mode trying to find, and that's what I did. Like I was like <laughs> full blast into it. So going back to whenever you were first diagnosed, like what happened? What were your first initial steps? Yeah, I I used the power of, of the internet. I did. I, I read medical journals. I went through um, all the, you know, like um, uh, uh, um, MD Anderson. I went to... Um, all the big hospitals here in New York, um, you saw in Kettering. And then I also set up a Google alert. I did. I thought, I'm like, you know what? I think the best way to find out about my cancer is to find out what people are saying about it. And so I used to get Google alerts about anything regarding DLBCL, which is diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Um, I also, you know, relied on, you know, meditation. Uh, and then I also obviously trusted, you know, they kept telling me this one drug, Rituxan. <laughs> so my drug was called RCHOP, R-CHOP. And they're like, Rituxan is amazing. You don't understand. I'm like, that means nothing to me. Yeah. So I did some research on that. But I also really relied on what I know best, which is this integrative modality aspect. Um, yeah. You know, when I first got diagnosed, the things that sort of ran through my head, this is probably too early for you, but there's a movie with Keanu Reeves um, called Little Buddha. And there was a scene in the movie where he, so he plays Buddha, which is uh, Siddhartha. And he basically gave up all his worldly possessions. He gave up his wife, everything. And he was meditating for years without any food. He was meditating and he heard two individuals on a fishing boat. And one of them was talking about, if you hold the instrument too loose, it, it won't play. If you hold it too tight, it'll snap. And then I heard, find the middle way. And that was in the movie. And that's what I did. I decided to do both. So I did not tell my oncologist I was doing integrative modalities. So my succession of... Um, of, um, of uh, chemo was every three weeks. Mm -hmm. And so in between those three weeks, I was doing um, red light therapy, some called ozone therapy. Ozone mm -hmm. has been used in, in Germany for many years. Yeah. Um, uh, I did um, acupuncture. Um, I did um, infrared um, uh, infrared sauna. Yeah. Um, I did something called the black seed oil. I read the Quran. Yeah, and the so there's a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Did you um, have like a supplement regime or like a specific way that you were eating? My diet was good, but I'll be honest, I lost like 13 pounds after I came out of the hospital for two weeks. And my mom was like, no, 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 we, we can't have this. Yeah. So she was feeding me like foods that I haven't eaten since I was a child because, you know, like my background is Indian. Um, and so, um, so that was good. But no, I, I, I made sure that my diet was good. I was still working out. My, no one tells you, but when you, uh, get chemo and you lose hair, you lose hair everywhere. Everywhere your eyes and and like, I was like, I, I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, I look like a boy. Like this, if you, if you know what I mean. And I'm like an Indian hairy guy, you know? So I'm like, yeah. this is weird. Um, but yeah, my eyebrows were falling out. I was still working out. Um, I was just, you know what? Really, I made a promise to myself. And the promise was just do the best you can. Yeah. And the rest is really not up to you. So I just tried to do the best I could. I really made cancer survivorship my main focus. I like put everything to the side and I just focus like a laser beam. Um, and that's what I put in my book. I focus like a laser beam on the process of healing. Yeah. I love that. And you had a few pillars in your book that you mentioned. Do you want to outline those? 
um, pillars with the, um, it was, oh, oh yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 There's, there's so many. So there's like sort of this idea of, uh, listening to the three brains. So the head, heart and gut, um, which is really, you know, there's a lot of studies about consciousness and how it gives you, or it, it's, it uh, allows you to, to gain more clarity or main gain more, um, intelligence for your life. Um, I would say a lot of, a lot of it's sort of like detached from your triggers. Like what's really triggering you right now? And, be very objective about the triggers, not really subjective, because I think when we get caught up in it, we can't see anything else besides that. Um, I would also say it's really sort of this idea of the, like falling back on like listening to just your inner wisdom in general, because I think that's really the precipitous to transformation. People talk about transformation, but transformation happens sometimes not um, in the doctor's office. It happens when you're like not doing much yeah. uh, in your life. More often than not. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You really talked about, you know, mind, body and gut. I think it was that, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's just, you know, it's, uh, it's, um, it's called, you know, brain, you know, brain integration really. And there's a lot of science behind this. It's still sort mm -hmm. of a nebulous uh, to some degree, but I think if you feel into it, if you're someone who's just really okay with being with self and some people are not, which is fine, yeah. but I'm, I've been a meditator, so I'm comfortable with that. I think it can give you a lot of clarity and a lot of information that you might not be able to glean if you just think with your head all the time, which I lived in my head for many years. I think if you shift and, you know, I do this sort of ritual with my clients where you sort of shift and let that other body part speak to you, even if it's just an image or a feeling or a sensation, what is it trying to say to you? What, what, what is it trying to tell you? Yeah. Yeah. I think actually, you know, it's really interesting. Um, seeing my mom go through even like some cancer groups and whatnot, it just seems like the women that tend to get cancer are so stoic. Like they're just so sometimes in their masculine or maybe just like, I don't want to burden people like that's it. And, and they're like the nicest people. Like what, what cancer is called, like the nice person disease. And it's because like, we're like stuffing our emotions down. But I think a lot of that comes from like, not really knowing how to identify with how to like, even like feel your emotions. Like a lot of people are like, I don't get it. It makes no sense because we are primarily in the logical brain. And the only way, like, you know, I, I'd meditated for, I started like, I don't even know in my early twenties. And I was like, this is great. And it was like making things better and journaling really helped me, especially like getting out things that I did throughout the day. I've gotten into a really great habit of um, writing down everything I'm proud of myself for doing, oh, finishing awesome. the day. Yeah. Cause I am like an overachiever and sometimes I just want to get more done than is possibly even capable of my being to do. So I've gotten into the habit of, you know, like acknowledging myself for all the things that I did do. Right. And then, you know, correcting it, but really I'm kind of trying to get around to how how do we get into that part of knowing ourselves, like trusting our intuition? How do we even tap into our intuition? What are some ways that you would give recommendations into someone to be with themselves? Like a lot of people don't know what the heck that means. Yeah. So a few things come to mind. So number one, it's the breath. And I know there's a lot of like movement around the breath, but it's yeah. so, it's something we take for granted. It's so it just is. Yeah. So when you focus on the breath, you're giving it more power. You're, you're, you're energizing it. And it's as simple as a body scan. I do it with literally like my podcast guests that I have on. If there's something that's sort of troubling them or something that they want sort of clarity on, I just have them breathe into the different body parts of your body because we are our physical selves. Um, even that, that few minutes have given a lot of people some time to reflect. Yeah. Um, 
And then, you know, you can start. I tell people like, you don't have to be in lotus position and do it the way people have been doing it. You could just do it like one minute with yeah. a one minute meditation. Yeah. Whether it's words or instrumental music or even a chant or even like your favorite song. I mean, this just starts small. Yeah. And then, you know, work your way up. So I think that's number one. And I think the second one I would say is a really, really big one is really like um, being comfortable with what comes up. I think that's what scares people the most. They don't want, they don't want to do that because they don't know what's going to come up. I know. But yeah. the what's that's coming up is an indication that something might need adjustment. It doesn't mean something's bad. It just means something might just need, you know, need more of your attention on. Yeah. I love that you say that because so many times, um, it's your first thought that goes through your head. And I so many times feel like that thought sometimes can be scary. So I'm like, no, it can't be that. So I avoid it. And then it just keeps coming back and it will keep reminding you until you can either get like hit by the side of the head or you listen to it in the beginning. But I actually love that you mentioned breath work because I'm actually, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a certified breath work facilitator. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. no, I did not know. Yeah. It's awesome. So the fastest way to get out of your mind and into your body is to get out of your head. And the fastest way to do that is to deepen your connection to your breath. If you're consciously focusing on your breath, like you know this, but I want to just say it for the purpose of everyone's listening. When you're focusing like consciously on your breath, you don't have space and time to think about what's going on in your head. You can see the thoughts coming in and out, but if you just refocus onto the breath, onto the breath, your body is a healing modality. It is so much more powerful than anyone can ever understand, any science can ever measure. And what you can do in a matter of minutes, like Savio, you even said, like just play your favorite song and breathe along to it and just focus in on the expansion of your body. And that is miraculous. Like that is so much healing to it that people I think underestimate. And it seems simple. And sometimes we don't want the simple things to be the solution, but it really can be that simple. Yeah. And, you know, actually, you know, you saying that, you know, just reminds me, it's controversial. So I'm going to put it out there. But, you know, this whole soul abortion, all that stuff. But there's many spiritual and, you know, ritual sayings that say that the soul enters the body through the first breath. Mm. It, it that doesn't become an actual soul body until that first breath sort of strikes. So the breath is very important. It's just something that we just don't give time for because we just honestly take it for granted. Yeah, I know. A lot of people laugh at me whenever I tell them that I'm a breathwork facilitator and they're like, so what do you do? I'm like, I actually like technically teach people how to breathe because we never learned how to do it properly. <laughs> we we absolutely never learned how to do it properly. And, and I've been a nose breather for most of my life. Like I literally yeah. had to retrain I'm, I'm sorry. I've been a mouth breather mo yeah. most of my life. I had to retrain myself to breathe through my nose because it's, you know, and I, I remember the doctor telling my dad, he really like need, I remember when I was young, he's like, you really need to start breathing from his nose. Mm. And I'm like, did you show my dad? Did you tell me how to do it? No, no one gave me any trainings mm -hmm. on it. They just told me to do it. Doesn't mean I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. And for everyone listening, the reason why it's so important to breathe through your nose is that's your first line of defense. Like everything that goes through your nose, like that's your first immune response right there. Um, and you don't get that through your mouth. It's it's okay to breathe out of your mouth, but just try to focus on breathing in your nose. And even um, they actually found that endurance wise, if you're working out, it helps with your like, I forget what it helps with, but it helps with your endurance. And then it helps with like less lactic acid buildup if you're breathing through your mouth while you're exercising. So now whenever I go to the gym and see people huffing and puffing through their mouth, I'm like, you're gonna, you're doing more harm than good. But you know what's interesting? People like work so my gym, like in the beginning, only, like you could only work out if you wore a mask. So I was like, okay, people are actually trying to breathe from their nose because they're like, it's too much work to breathe through my mouth. Yeah, it's good practice, I guess.
Totally. Okay. So let's talk about kind of like all of the people that you interviewed. Like what are the most common traits that you see with everyone that has, because all of the people that you interviewed overcame cancer in some way or another. Like it's all been different diagnoses. It's all been different ages. It's all been different races. It doesn't matter who it is or what they went through, but they did have one common thing when they overcame cancer, but what do you think would be that common denominator that enabled them to get over that? Was it a mindset? Was it something that they did? You know, what kind of comes through for you? I think they had a vision. I know it sounds really weird. And this is like a, the holy grail in coaching is to have that vision. We always mm -hmm. talk about visions. I think they had that vision. There's someone in the book who had a 3% chance of living. Wow. And he actually is back on his finance. And he's like, well, wait, 3%. So that means I could be one of those 3%. He didn't see that he was going to die and be the 90, you know, like 97% of that. He saw himself as being 3% as possibly living. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of it was also, well, what am I going to do if I'm still alive? Like, mm -hmm. what am I going to do if I'm still alive? And they thought some of them opened their own cancer charities. Some of them are working with cancer charities. Some of them are, you know, doing um, sort of like promotional work for cancer organizations. They want to take their cancer, but use it as a superpower. They want to turn that language of something that's horrifying and negative and actually foreboding into something that's empowering yeah. and hopeful and to some degree, um, you know, far reaching in a good way. Yeah. They transmuted their pain into something beautiful and helpful and good. And it's actually crazy. Just even our conversation right now, Savio, I know is probably because people weren't having these types of conversations before. And I, it's m so much more like it's going viral now. It's like spreading like wildfire. I really think we're part of a revolution. Um, and it's kind of crazy. So if someone's kind of listening and maybe they're at the beginning of their diagnosis or doesn't matter where they are and they are like, I don't really have a vision. What does that look like? How do I make a vision for myself? What if it has nothing to do with cancer? Is that okay? What, how do they map that out? I think they need to ask themselves three different questions. One is, what is, what is this cancer thing like doing for my life right now? Like you have to be really real about it. Like, like I want you to like, it's like it's cancer making you cry. It's cancer making you heartache. It's cancer. Are you in physical pain? Just write it down. Yeah. And then I want you to actually think about when you write those words down or those feelings down, what is happening in you? Like, are you scared? Are you nervous? Are you afraid? Are you, are you, are you angry? Because a large portion of the people in my book, one of them in particular said that her cancer betrayed her. Like she, her body betrayed her. Mm -hmm. She was so good. Yeah. She was the healthiest person she knew, she stated, but her body betrayed her. That's an awful feeling. Like think about a friend betraying you or a family member betraying you. That's yeah. your body's betraying you. I think that's the second one. And I think really the third one is to be super objective about it. I know this is hard because, and I can only speak from a cancer person. So I'm speaking from the truth. You have to detach from the cancer that's affecting your physical body to who you are more than your cancer. You are an emotional being. You are a spiritual being. You're a soul being. You're a vibrational. You're an astral being. Astral means like your dream. Like, so you are more than just that physical ailment, that dis-ease. You're more than that. And that's what I did. I saw Sabio was really sick. He could be dying. I mean, my medical director was not lying to me when she told me I had, I was stage three. Um, and, um, I saw, okay, this Savio is really dying, but there's other parts of Savio that's vibrant and, and energetic and hopeful and, and wishful. 
And I think you need to really, and that's where the vision part comes in. It's not about vision like, oh, I want to in five years, you know, whatever, take my cancer and write and make a movie. Great. That's fantastic. It's really about what is this cancer like right now? What is it doing to you? And how do you want it to be and feel? Because we are mind over matter to some degree. We are our thoughts. And, you know, we can actually perceive and create new realities from those particular. You have to be in action, though. Like, that's the missing step. Like, speaking to a, a good friend years ago, and she said, you know, one of the things with the secret, she said, the secret's fantastic, was the fact that you can kind of want these things and wish for these things. But sometimes it doesn't happen because you yourself are not mirroring that. So if you want kindness in a relationship, are you being kind? Are, when, if you want a trustful relationship, or like I'm talking about relationships, but are you trustful in general? You know, so you have to mirror that same energy that you're trying to um, bring into your life. Yeah. And that is manifestation at its basics. You, in order to feel the way you want to feel, you can't wait for something to happen. You have to already start feeling into what that would feel like. And you can take like meditation as a great way to do that. Um, even journaling, like doing future tense being like the present tense or sorry, future things being present tense is kind of a good way. Um, but yeah, I love that you said all that thing, you know, be just being realistic with what's going on and why, why this might've come about, like where, where is this taking you in your life? Because it's interesting, no matter how many people I interview, they're always like, I would never wish this upon anyone, but I would never change it for the world either because it's taught me so much and it's been the biggest blessing. And cancer sometimes shows up as the divine tap on the shoulder to look at life completely differently and approach it completely differently. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, I, I echo the sentiment. I would not want to have it um, be thrusted upon me the way it did. But in hindsight and in retrospect, I'm kind of happy that it did because it showed me a new avenue and new path. I mean, my background was IT. I was in project management. I did that well. I was very good behind the scenes. I never really, I was always really scared to be, you know, front facing. Now I'm a board certified wellness coach. Um, I'm in a whole different industry. I'm a uh, syndicated columnist. I, I wrote a, I'm a number one bestselling author. I'm a podcaster. Um, I'm also interviewing, like I, I interviewed a few months ago, Venus Williams. Like, I mean, I'm like, I, I just came back from South by Southwest. I'm supposed to go to like um, Jordan for an event. Um, so I think it allowed me to take the biggest fear, which was being seen and being vulnerable. That th those were my biggest. And then my sub biggest was shame. I think it really said, okay, you had this really thing happen to you. What are you going to do now? Yeah. Because, you know, as much as people say, like, you're in remission, it could always come back. And I'm realistic about that. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm trying to live the best life I can. Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit, use the next couple minutes here and talk about what specifically you typically teach people if they were to come on as a client. Yeah. So I my niche is cancer survivors. I mean, it's, it's, I always tell people, you do not want me as a coach because that means you had cancer. But if you did have it and you did overcome it, uh, I'm sort of the go-to resource. And I think it's because of my empathy. Um, not only that, it's because of my trainings. I have about eight different certifications and I didn't do that 
because of ego. I really did that because I did not want to take the responsibility of being in front of someone and not knowing how to adequately move them to the change process. And change is a very tricky thing. And I mentioned this in the book. You know, there's this, um, 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 uh, you know, school of thought in, in coaching and just, you know, therapy in general, which is the trans theoretical model of change. It states that people aren't resistant to change. They just don't know how to change because they don't, there's stages of change. There's like, you know, exploration and there's, you know, action and there's sort of like, and people just don't know how to sort of move through that. And so as a coach, the really the thing you can, the best thing you can do for someone is to sort of ask them the questions and sort of use reframing and use ways to adequately have that open and honest conversation because I'll never be an expert on them. They'll be an expert on themselves. I'm just there to sort of move that conversation along. So we go into mindset, you know, we go into emotional sort of work. Um, I, you know, coined this, um, you know, phrase in my um, website, which is, you know, the seven bodies, seven vehicles, which is really the chakras, um, you know, the, and we go through that as well. Yeah. And we also really touch on things of your past. I mean, we are our past experiences. I'm very clear that I'm a coach. I'm not a therapist, so I'm not yeah. going into trauma. But we are our lived experiences, and sometimes those things come up as well. Um, I think really the key is the type of clients that I really love working with are clients that are not afraid to really ask tough questions about themselves. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people talk about gratefulness, but gratefulness doesn't work unless you figure out why that thing you were grateful for actually took place. If you don't reassess your day and say, okay, I'm grateful for food. Why did that food happen? Oh, because I'm actually spending time working. Or you know, it sounds sim simple, but it sort of heightens the gratefulness. Mm -hmm. mm, absolutely. What are some of the most common emotional things that come up? How do we work through emotions? How do we release emotions? What does emotional work look like? I know we're not going to go into trauma, but you know, trauma can uh, cause a lot of trapped emotions in the body. So what are your best techniques for people to maybe one, recognize if they even have trapped emotions, which everyone does, um, and then how to work through those? I think the key is to pinpoint it. Like, like when you're talking about it or thinking about it or feeling into it, where in the body does that land for you? Does it land anywhere? It, you know, uh, if it doesn't. And if it does move into, like, let's say you're thinking about it all the time, then like I use the analogy of an elevator. Let's do an experiment. Let's try to bring that down, like, like an elevator going from like the level five to level one mm -hmm. and see if it gets stuck anywhere. Mm -hmm. And if it gets stuck, what are you seeing, sensing, feeling, visualizing? Is it, you know, reverberating something? Is it giving you a message of some kind or yeah. a word or a phrase? Uh, so I think that's very important. And of course, as we mentioned, the breath, right? The breath sort of allows you to, it's like guideposts that sort of maybe like gives you like, um, uh, you know, like sort of ways and means to sort of, um, sort of navigate the edges because sometimes those edges can be really, really tricky. I mean, it's yeah. a, it's a, it's not an easy thing to go into things that made you feel certain things or things that are making you feel certain things in, in the present day. I think as humans, we're really good at compart, you know, compartmentalizing, but sometimes we don't really take the time to look through the, through our bags. And yeah. as Erica Badu says, you got to look through the bags. You yeah. got to look through the bags. Yeah. Yeah. And, a really great example of this. I mean, to know that you're harboring emotions and that you're, you know, maybe there's emotional stuff being like stuck in your body. It's the first indication is being triggered. 
Like if you're feeling like you're on this like obsessive loop thinking about something or someone triggers you every single time, like maybe it's just one specific person that just does something so slightly off, but anyone else could do it. But if that one person does it, then you're triggered. That's a really good indication. This has actually been coming up for me a lot, right? So typically I'll just like go to my journal and be like, what does this remind me of? Who does this remind me of? When was I treated like this? Why, why is this showing up in my life? Why did they act this way? Do I think? Um, and I can get into like some pretty good um, examples. Like I had some anger stuff going on. I'm like, who does this remind me of? I'm like, it reminds me of my stepdad. Why did he act like that? He had unfair expectations. Okay. Where do I have unfair expectations in my life and how am I exuding that out into my world? And how is that reflecting back to me? Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. Those are, th those are the right prompts to ask. I mean, that's like, that's, that's, you know, so beautiful. I mean, someone else would probably also say too, you know, depending upon your belief system, that it could be something from a karmic type of, you know, soul yeah. karmic type of thing as well. So it really takes time to make the time yeah. to explore these things. If you don't make the time, then you're really going to be in that loop, the automaticity, as they say, of action and, and reaction. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And definitely going into action is like being proactive and being curious, not judgmental towards what's coming up. And being triggered is a really beautiful example of some things that can help you release what you no longer need to harbor. So um, being proactive whenever things come up, you don't have to like be like magically proactive about everything all of a sudden, because you don't know what you have to be proactive about, but just taking those little hints that you get throughout the days to be proactive about or hiring a coach like Savio to help you out and ask the right <laughs> yeah, questions. Well <laughs> I always say like, so like my moniker, like for my superpower is like, a, you know, like a curious soul because I really like love the fact. So it's like Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist, she would go into subcultures and cultures and not tell them what to do, not say much. She would just record, yeah. record and observe, record and observe yeah. because she was going in. And I think if we try that and it's hard, even for me, sometimes when I'm put into a situation where I'm like, this is so not good. For example, the Will Smith slaps situation, which we're not going to go into. Um, I'm trying to observe it from from a very objective point of view. That's hard to do. Yeah, it really is. Because as human beings, we are judgmental creatures and we judge, you know, for good reasons. Sometimes we judge our friend for dating a guy that we know is not good enough for them. And then that harbors us. And sometimes we judge people for really critical reasons um, and whatnot. So... Okay. We only have a couple minutes left. I would love to know if someone came to you and they were like, Savio, I just got diagnosed with cancer. I don't know what to do. I feel helpless. Um, I feel overwhelmed. What would you say to them in that moment? I would ask them, what do you know about your cancer? Not like just the medical, but what do you know about what it is? Like, what do you know that it can do or can't do for you? Mm -hmm. Then I would actually have them say, who do you know in your life that's a, a, a resource or support that can help you move along that journey? And then the third thing I would say is you need to be like super focused. Like someone in my book mentioned, you cannot fight a battle if you don't know who your enemy is. You cannot fight a battle if you're not prepared. Mm -hmm. You have to know have to take stock in what you have mm -hmm. and you have to to some degree trust your medical professionals and if they're not working for you You have to go to other medical professionals to get a second opinion mm -hmm. and you have to reassess the tools and be open-minded to the process because yeah. cancer is a transformative process i know a friend whose father had cancer years ago and he said his father doesn't even think about it mm. and you know to each their own it's a different generation i totally get it yeah 
But there's a reason, and I put this in the book, cancer, even though medical you know, establishments, I'm a board-certified wellness coach, don't doesn't know the full answer of it. There's a reason why it manifested. Yeah. There's a cause of the effect, whatever it was, as horrible as it is. So you need to figure out how it is that you can overcome it or how it is that you can get back your happy again. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. How to find joy in the heavy moments for sure is definitely a challenging thing because it's such a looming, dooming thing. It's like cancer, but you know, just the more research you do, the more, you know, the more research I did at first, I felt really overwhelmed and just consumed and being like, there's this consuming thing of dread, like this dreadful, like, oh my gosh, this doesn't look good. And then now the more I learn about it, you know, I'm two and a half years into it. My mom's uh, prognosis was like July, 2021. So she should have passed back in the summer. And the more I learn about it, the more um, empowered I feel around it. And the more people I talk to that have gone through, you know, a similar journey or they've overcome cancer, the more I feel like at ease with it. And if anything, you know, you know, (laughs) it's just teaches you so much in such a condensed amount of time. And at this, in the same breath, like definitely trust your own intuition. And that is like the main thing. Like if something isn't working for you, you have to be able to stand up for yourself and say, this isn't working for me. I have to find a different way. And there's always another way. There is always another way. So never limit yourself to the one and only option that you're given by one person or one doctor. Um, there's always an alternative route and it might not just be visible yet, but it's always will unfold as you go and trust your intuition and just follow those little breadcrumb trails. And that might be listening to a podcast like this one or reading a book or I'm hiring a coach, you know, it just all depends, but it will unfold. Yeah. I mean, really at the end of the day, the main thing I got from interviewing so many people is cancer is not a death sentence. It's not, it doesn't have to be, it can be unfortunately, but it doesn't have to be. And there's ways and means to sort of move through those feelings and, and, and the scary moments because it is, it is overwhelming. I'm not trying to you know negate the fact that uh, I just was kind of built differently. I saw it as a challenge and I just found a way to sort of navigate towards that. But, um, you know, I, I think that's where sort of the, you know, the objectivity comes, the sensitivity comes, mm-hmm. and also sort of this ability to separate the cancer from what you're ha- what's happening in your body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That quote that um, cancer is not a death sentence. That was a stage four survivor, wasn't it? Yeah. That said was, that. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. awesome. Okay. Where can people find you? What, what's your book called? Just refresh everyone. Sure. So you can go to my website, thehumanresolve.com. I have information on my coaching, my podcast is in there, my newsletter is in there. I, I do a weekly newsletter where I explore my own head, heart, and gut, and I speak to whatever's going on. I just did one about five things I learned from Lizzo at South by Southwest. She taught me five mm-hmm. things in her keynote address. Um, one of them involved twerking. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> um, the uh, They could also find the book at isurvivedcancer.co. You can click there to get my my book on Amazon. It's called I Survived Cancer. Here's how I did it. 35 cancer survivors share their journey. Um, and yeah, you can buy it on Amazon. Um, so yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And you can find me socially at The Human Resolve. Uh, I don't, I'm not using, I'm going to start using TikTok because one thing I learned in South by Southwest is, believe it or not, TikTok has a 6% engagement and Instagram has 0.83. So it's, it's, it's a six time engagement. So I need to start doing it. (laughs) I've converted over to TikTok, and it's been astounding how quickly people it's, you know, I feel like just this whole evolution of technology has just 
enabled us to find what we need faster. And it's just like made us connected so easily. And I mean, that's how you found me. So I'm so grateful for TikTok for that reason. Yeah, absolutely. No, hundred percent. I mean, to a large degree, I totally agree. So I attended uh, NFT activations. I attended metaverse activations, panelists and all that. And beyond the TikTok, I, it's great that technologically we're like advancing, but I think as human species, as beings, we're like devolving to some degree. We need to come back to like yeah. reality and truth and, uh, and uh, care and comfort. And, you know, we need to really be kind to ourselves and other people. So yeah. I, that's, that's the one thing I wish for you know, humanity in general. Yeah. And we need to set screen time limits for our apps. hundred percent. hundred percent. As powerful as social media is, it can consume your life and you will not be living your own life. And that is not what we showed up on this earth for. hundred <laughs> percent. If you see me doing TikTok dances, I went too far. I went too far. <laughs> All right, Savio. Well, I will end this here. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, and all that you are on the podcast. Thank you so much, Mazina. I really appreciate it. And thank you everyone for listening. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Before you head off, I'd love to give you a free resource of mine. When my mom was first diagnosed, the only thing I had control over is what I cooked her, but I had no idea what to make. But after a couple years, I've learned a thing or two. So I went ahead and made a quick start recipe guide for anyone that is just looking for the basic first steps that they need to take. This recipe guide includes many different recipes that I use with my mom. I know are extremely healing and also easy to make. So if you want to get this free download, you can just check out the show notes below or go to whatswithcancer.com forward slash quick start guide. That is whatswithcancer.com forward slash quick start guide. And there will be a place where you can just submit your email and it will send straight to your email with about 20 plus variations of recipes that you can start making tomorrow. All right, my friends, I hope you have the most blessed day. We will see you next time.